Hey everyone, it's Wade and Alex, and as we approach the end of the year, we're going to follow a typical pattern of a podcast and run a repeat episode. Uh, this one on risk tolerance questionnaires, we think, is really timely when it comes to the RISA and everything else going on. In particular, the research that we were discussing in this episode has actually now been published through the Alliance for Lifetime Income just in the last couple of weeks, and it's an important issue. Yeah, we wanted to... Uh... To really, uh, we're gearing up for our Retirement Income Masterclass that we're going to have in late January, January 23rd and 24th. And if you're an advisor, we'd love for you to attend. Uh, we'll have a link on the on the show notes in the bottom. I, I, I think it's fantastic, actually. And for consumers, we have a Retirement Income Challenge every quarter or so, so just keep an eye out for that when it comes. But we're gearing up for an advisor masterclass that deals with Theresa and as you've seen over the last few episodes, what we've been doing is actually interviewing folks that are on a, that are on our advisory board. Uh, firstly, just so to give everyone a sense of that, there are a lot of great people actually working on trying to solve this retirement income puzzle for the mass population of folks, and to give you a sense of the culture of the folks we're bringing together and, and what we're about, simply because it's it's good to work with great people and. and and the like. And so what we want to do in this week, as Wade said, is there's a little bit of a, you know, doldrums, if you will. And we wanted, but we still wanted to make sure we had something of great value. And with that, we do get a lot of questions about, you know, the retirement income style awareness uh, assessment tool that we created, asking us, where does that fit within the toolbox for an advisor, but also as a client, what's the order of operations? And we feel very strongly that you know, relative to risk tolerance questionnaires, the RISA is an and, not a but, and it comes before the process. But instead of getting into it now, uh, listen in. I, I think uh, Wade and myself do a great job, if I may say so, Wade. <laughs> we do a very thorough job of really giving you the nuts and bolts on where the RISA, what role the RISA plays with regards to a retirement income solution and how it juxtaposes against a risk tolerance questionnaire. Wait, anything That's else right. to add to that? Yeah, this was one of our early episodes, so maybe you'll see a difference in how we approach things. Probably we're a little bit more organized in some of those early episodes. But I hope you enjoy, and we will include the article in the show notes, that the, the research that we were describing effectively in the episode. So happy holidays, everyone, and we'll, we'll see you next year as we go into that masterclass at the end of January, and then... Beyond that as well, when we get into uh, a theme on investments, and also I know Social Security is in the pipeline for a, a major topic of conversation, and, and we'll just keep going with retirement income in 2023. And so thanks, everyone, for listening, and catch you in the new year. All righty. Take care, everyone, and thank you so much for your support so far. It's been absolutely amazing and fantastic. Thanks again. Bye. Are you a financial professional wondering how to transition your clients from the accumulation to the distribution phase? How to engage individuals looking for a professional with true retirement income expertise? How to mutually develop a solution that resonates with them? Or how to grow your practice in a meaningful way that's based on best practices for financial planning? Then you've come to the right place. Sign up for our two-day masterclass for financial professionals hosted by Wade and Alex on January 23rd and 24th from 12 to 1.30, both days. Your future practice will thank you for it. 
Go to resaprofile.com slash masterclass. One person's risk is another's reward. I think that's right. Well, let's listen and find out with our hosts, Wade and Alex. Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining us on Retire with Style. I'm Alex, and I'm here with... Wade. Wade Fowl. That's right. <laughs> so, Alex, what are we going to be talking about today? Well, hey, that's, that's what, a, what a great segue, Wade. <laughs> No, today what we have on shelf is we spent the previous episodes talking about these newfangled retirement income beliefs and how they identify your retirement income personality and then by extension your strategies. And you know, with that we took the the Risa matrix and how probability safety first and optionality commitment orientation are two factors that can, you know, be put together and help identify your strategies and style. But you know, with all of that, something that we didn't speak about is risk tolerance and our loss aversion and how that factors into this, if at all. Wade, what do you think about that? Yeah, it's an important topic because, well, first, we probably should take a step back and explain what this risk tolerance business is all about. <laughs> but then we really want to dig into, like, naturally, people want to think that the RISA is, is somehow a risk tolerance for retirement. And that's, that's not what it is, but we want to really dig into why they're different and why they're not incompatible with each other, but why the RISA really needs to come first in the conversation before you even think about something like risk tolerance. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. Uh, I, I think it's one of these, the right tool for the right job, if you will. Uh, Wade and I had a little contribution in an advisor perspective article. And one of the things we said, which really gets to the heart of it, is that you know there's not you know they're you know using a risk tolerance questionnaire to establish your retirement income strategy as a starting point is like you know a doctor checking your pulse to measure cholesterol. You know there's nothing wrong with checking your pulse, but it's just not the right test for the situation. And we feel the RISA is actually a more effective decumulation tool. You know, and now as we get into this, when we, when we talk about this. We realize there's there's certain issues with risk tolerance questionnaires that we're not going to really address here. I mean, there you know questions come up with regards to their predictive validity, with their predictive validity and with their reliability. But for the sake of, of of this episode, let's just assume, you know, that those these are all tenable assumptions, and we don't need to worry about that. We really want to stick to uh, how a risk tolerance questionnaire compares to the RISA when it comes to developing a retirement strategy, if you will. And and just real quick, Wade, uh, with regards to that, uh, wh why why is that? Why why do you feel there's a different need, you know, as you're getting ready for retirement to to take a step back? Yeah. Well, first we probably should even explain what a, a risk tolerance questionnaire is for for anyone who may not even know what this is referring to. But to simplify, good point, good in, point. <laughs> in a general manner. Uh, if you're talking to a traditional investment manager or you are talking to a, like a, a robo-advisor or something like that, it's all centered around this idea of modern portfolio theory, which is simply you build a diversified investment portfolio. And generally, there's a belief in, in the stock market and stocks for the long run that over the long run, 
ultimately this sort of worldview would suggest investing aggressively or as aggressively as you can. But we know not everyone can tolerate the volatility of a very aggressive investment allocation. And so the risk tolerance questionnaire, it was a tool that's been created to try to identify how much short-term market volatility can you handle and still be comfortable. And so if you're someone who can tolerate the risk, maybe you can handle that 90 or 100% stock allocation. If you're somebody who really can't tolerate that type of risk, then the answer that comes out of doing that sort of risk tolerance questionnaire would be, well, maybe you should only have a 20 or 30% stock allocation. But the investment manager will use the risk tolerance questionnaire to just identify how much short-term market volatility can you handle and then put you in an investment strategy that's as aggressive as you can handle with the idea that over the long run, the more aggressive you are, and, the more long-term growth you should and, be and able wait, to accommodate. And wait, just a couple of notes on that. Uh, when you mean investments, we're really talking about a, a stock market bond portfolio. You know, that, yeah, that, the asset that, allocation between yeah. just generally risky assets like stocks and then in, in the investment world, though not in the retirement world, risk-free assets like bonds that yeah, you and, hold and, to maturity, you know what you're going to get. And the, the, other, the other caveat, and you said it, but maybe to say it another way, is what they're ultimately asking you is figure out what your line is but from a point of pain tolerance they 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 they're trying to they're trying to see how far they can push you until you <laughs> scream uncle you know right. effectively from a portfolio and that's we we think that's suboptimal especially when you're beginning to decide on a retirement income strategy because you're just not concerned about well you are concerned but it's not the 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 salient concern isn't market volatility over the long term it's longevity risk and liquidity risk and you know, and liquidity risk for general liquidity issues like reserves and healthcare. And we spoke about this at length in previous episodes. And and feel free to check those out. But there's these new risks for retirement, and you know, the, the a risk tolerance questionnaire, which has its basis, its foundational underpinning, on loss aversion, is just not in tuned to to really assess those risks appropriately. Yeah, Alex, maybe you can tell everyone what you mean by loss aversion or what, what the risk tolerance questionnaire is measuring. Because again, I think these are terms that are not part of the everyday vernacular. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. And, and by risk tolerance questionnaires, in simplest form, if you have a 401k plan or if sometimes you know, you're with an advisor or even you're reading an article, there's these sets of questions that effectively ask you in, in so many ways, how well can you sleep at night? as the market is is suffering its slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, right? And, at a, you know, you go through answering these questions and uh, they take all these questions and it effectively says, this is the portfolio, this is the individualized portfolio that's right for you. You know, based on your, your questions about uh, volatility uh, appreciation. And so that, that that's kind of what you see and, and they spit out a portfolio, but it's based on the underpinning of loss aversion. And uh, that's effectively, I'm not going to do it justice because that in itself is a whole bachelor's degree, if you will. But effectively, it's stating that the valiance of a loss is roughly two and a half times that of a gain. So you feel a loss in an asymmetrical manner relative to the gain. And, uh, you know, sometimes you hear the term prospect theory thrown around and it's, it's kind of talking about loss aversion. It's called prospect theory, really, because there's a reference point that that you know that that you're making your decision on, 
And so how you usually see this in a risk questionnaire, besides asking about how well you sleep, is you're presented with a series of questions that have a 50-50, you know, they're, they're, they're cloaked in a 50-50 probability gamble between a potential loss and a gain. So, you know, the gain is anchored, if you will, but the spread, you know, as they ask you more and more questions, the spread between the gain and the loss widens to the negative. For example, they'll say something like, hey, you have a 50-50 chance of winning $100 or losing $10. Would you take that bet? You know, and most, most people would say yes. And, and then they'll increase the number of, you know, winning 100, losing 25, winning 100, losing 50, winning 100, losing 75. At a certain point, everyone has their line and they say stop. Now, I said this in 50-50 gambles with relatively small sums, you know, and so it's hard to translate that into a portfolio, but these questionnaires generalize it into a portfolio and instead of saying losing 100, winning 50, you know, et cetera, et cetera, or winning 100, losing 50, they do it within the context of a portfolio of value and the investment volatility is obviously the gain and loss. And so there's a line that everyone has and they effectively map that line to a portfolio allocation. And hence you have a risk tolerance questionnaire. Now within the industry, those have been used for a variety of reasons. And you know, like Wade said earlier, if you're accumulating and you're not necessarily drawing assets from the portfolio, it, it really is a matter of how much volatility can you stomach because over the long term, time diversification plays out and you know, you're better off remaining invested in something that you can stomach. And what I mean by time diversification is that, you know, over the longer term, stocks go up relative to them going down. So you can kind of assume that that will take place, you know, in the future. But that's an assumption. Not yeah, some right academics now. disagree with that, but certainly oh. anyone with a probability based mindset would believe in the idea of stocks for yeah. the long run, which is what Jeremy Siegel calls one of his. No, you're right. Wait, that's books. the caveat. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that they believe in the time diversification piece and so it'll work out. And uh, where was I, Wade? I kind of lost track there a little bit. <laughs> well, we're talking about the risk tolerance questionnaires. And so there are a lot of potential concerns. It's an active area of research of whether these risk tolerance questionnaires really do any good in the first place, whether like if the stock market's more volatile, do people express less tolerance for risk versus if the stock market recently has been doing very well, do people answer these questions in a more tolerant manner of risk and so forth. But we can, in this discussion today, set all of that aside. Because when we talk about the issues or concerns with risk tolerance questionnaires for retirement, we're not even referring to any of the known existing issues people talk about when they say these risk tolerance questionnaires may not be very effective. We're really talking about a completely different issue, which is do these risk tolerance questionnaires actually work to identify the concerns people have when it comes to retirement income? And that's an issue that really hasn't been part of the conversation before. Yeah. It's just assumed that these work. And, and like, I think, Alex, what you were getting into was just this general idea of uh, why do these risk tolerance questionnaires get used in the first that's, place? That's why correct. do financial advisors well. like them so much? <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. Wait, it's like you really know me. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. It's the workflow. It's, uh, you know, sometimes you ask yourself, well, well how did they get, how did, how did they, how have they permeated the industry, if you will? And they're, they're, they're you know, let's say somebody's entering retirement. It's, it's just a tailor-made workflow that you can onboard, frankly, you can onboard a client, a prospect at that time, fairly well into an offering that you already have. 
and it provides a great compliance documentation uh, uh, workflow as well. Um, now, again, we're putting aside the validity and all of those issues, but it, you know, it's, you're able to paper why somebody is in a specific portfolio with the assumption that that's the right retirement strategy. And that's an assumption that that's the assumption we take issue with here uh, from the vantage point of you have to first decide what retirement strategy is appropriate, you know, based on what new retirement risk you want to take off the table. And so what we did in our in our study that was sponsored by the Alliance for Lifetime Income, we actually took all of these RISA factors and retirement concerns that we previously discussed, but we measured loss aversion. And loss aversion is a foundational uh, component to all of these risk tolerance questionnaires. And so that gives us a good sense of potentially, you know, how, how good these questionnaires are, are at in terms of uh, capturing the specificities with regards to these retirement concerns. Are you a financial professional wondering how to transition your clients from the accumulation to the distribution phase? How to engage individuals looking for a professional with true retirement income expertise? How to mutually develop a solution that resonates with them? Or how to grow your practice in a meaningful way that's based on best practices for financial planning? then you've come to the right place. Sign up for our two-day masterclass for financial professionals hosted by Wade and Alex on January 23rd and 24th from 12 to 1.30 both days. Your future practice will thank you for it. Go to resaprofile.com slash masterclass. Wade, you want to talk about the, the study results here and what we found? Sure, sure. And, and just a, a little more context about that first, like why these risk tolerance questionnaires existed. In the 1950s, Harry Markowitz developed modern portfolio theory, which basically just said, diversify, that when you look at an individual investment, it's not how risky that investment is on its own, but how does it contribute to an overall portfolio? And that you could have a volatile investment, but if it's negatively correlated with other assets, it might contribute really well to a portfolio. And so you build a diversified investment portfolio. And then again, back to the idea that you seek the risk premium from the stock market, so you try to be aggressive. Now he won a Nobel Prize for that in 1990. And then afterwards he was asked, well, how does this modern portfolio theory that he developed apply to household investors? And he said he never thought about it before, but after reflecting on it for an evening, he recognized modern portfolio theory was never meant to apply to household investors, that it was just like something for infinitely lived mutual funds and, and other institutional type investors. And he pointed out you really need something different for retirement. And that in some ways that 1991 article he wrote just after winning the Nobel Prize and then saying the whole investment management industry that developed on the back of modern portfolio theory, <laughs> using it to identify investment strategies for households, that was never the intended purpose. And so we've always been looking for something else. And that's where, right, we now can have some empirical evidence about this, which is Alex's question in terms of when we look at the concerns people have for retirement, what does a risk tolerance questionnaire help to identify? Like what kind of risks are people willing to take on or, or what are they even concerned with? And ultimately what we find is the risk tolerance questionnaire is not all that helpful compared to when we look at the factors in the RISA, 
we can actually see a relationship much better between the RISA factors and the types of concerns people may have for retirement. And I do think we've talked about those concerns in past episodes. We described them as the four L's, although this particular research really has brought in that more into five L's as well. But these concerns are longevity. It's really this, your basic expenses in retirement. How worried are you about the risk of outliving your ability to fund your basics? Liquidity, which we, we just treated as liquidity, but this study is revealing there's really two kinds of liquidity. Uh, general spending shocks uh, and having reserves to help manage general spending shocks. And then also specific concerns about health, long-term care related type of spending shocks and having liquidity to manage those. And then lifestyle, the uh, your discretionary, like having the best situation retirement, being able to manage not just essential spending, but discretionary spending as well to maximize your overall lifestyle. And then legacy, although the, our studies reveal that generally people are not as worried about legacy, so we don't need to dig as much into that. Yeah, but and, then, and just real quick, legacy is like, you know, how you want to be impactful for future generations. And the reality we find that folks are more like if there's something left over, fine, but that's not something we're going to be too, too intentional about. Now, that differs between folks, but that's the, the average. Yeah, it's not the, the driving motivation for the typical retiree. Okay, so then getting into the, the study findings. So the question is like, do the RISA factors help to explain the concerns people may have? And do risk tolerance questionnaires help to explain the concerns that people have? And what we found is the risk tolerance questionnaires, they can help to explain the uh, lifestyle, which generally makes sense in that regard, that if you, you're trying to maximize the returns on your portfolio just for the potential to be able to spend more and, and enjoy the highest potential lifestyle, of course, taking on the risk that if that the, the market doesn't cooperate with you, you may not get the lifestyle you're looking for. But risk tolerance questionnaires do help to identify lifestyle. They do have a, a little bit of a link to general concerns about liquidity, but that's it they really don't do a very effective job with any of the other retirement concerns. Whereas the RISA factors do help to explain the concerns, like, like we're talking about risk tolerance. So how much risk are you willing to take with regard to your concerns for longevity, for the liquidity for health expenses and long-term care, for the liquidity for general health expenses? And, and that's where uh, risk tolerance does explain that a little bit, but the uh, RISA factors have a much stronger explanatory power. And then the same for lifestyle, that though the risk tolerance questionnaire does help to explain lifestyle concerns, the RISA factors also have a stronger ability to to explain lifestyle concerns at the same time as well. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting. What, what you see here is that, said another way, uh, yeah, longevity, which is fear of running out of money, which is the main concern that you have when developing a retirement income strategy and liquidity with regards to health, which is concern 1B with regards to uh, developing a retirement income strategy. Those those sensitivities are really captured by the RISA profile, by one's one sensitivity, probability, safety first, and optionality, commitment, orientation. The RISA matrix does a, a far superior job. Portfolio loss aversion doesn't doesn't even come up. It's not significant at all. In and, terms and what of that means is up these sensitivities. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, what it means is just if you're risk tolerant or you're risk averse, so if you're comfortable investing aggressively or you're not comfortable investing aggressively, <laughs> that just has no connection to yeah. your concerns about longevity or liquidity for health expenses. Yeah, and, and another question that could come up by somebody uh, listening in would be, well, what about risk capacity? Because, you know, there's risk tolerance, risk capacity, and, you know, composure even is, is an up-and-comer with regards to this kind of thing. and. We did, we did control, so we did account for net worth, which we're gonna make the argument is a capacity proxy. And controlling for, we control, we, control, we accounted for age, relationship status, uh, net worth, capacity proxy right there, retirement status and gender. And the RISA was still significant across all these factors. Portfolio loss aversion remained insignificant across longevity and liquidity. And, and frankly, net worth was actually a significant variable as well. So, you know, there, there are other factors that play into this, but the RISA is able to, even, even, even accounting for all these factors, the RISA is still providing a lot of signal with regards to the types of risks somebody wants to take off the table in retirement. Interestingly enough, the younger you are, the more you're worried about it. I think as you get older, you, you kind of fall into uh, you know, a, a, a better crystallization of how it is you're going to address it simply because you're right there looking at it and the uncertainty starts getting removed. Uh, but yeah, even in the ones that portfolio loss aversion was somewhat significant in such as liquidity for general and lifestyle concerns, the RISA is, the, 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 the study show the RISA is still more robust in terms of explanatory power over just general portfolio loss aversion. So it was quite quite interesting to us in the sense that the RISA is just picking up these longevity concerns and health reserves concern while reti retirement sort of uh, risk, these risk questionnaires are silent on it. And, and that's interesting, even for lifestyle, I would, thought, I would have thought the RISA may not have been significantly related to lifestyle since it's focused on retirement income for more essential kind of expenses and lifestyle just tends to imply a little bit more discretion. And, you know, there I thought the risk questionnaire would have would have taken over, but no, not at all. I mean, it's significant, both of them are significant, but still, you, you, you know, results show that the risk is just more robust. And again, this is across a national sample. It's not just a, you know, a very focused group. And, and, and again, I'll say it, while controlling for age, relationship status, net worth, retirement status, and gender. It, it was still quite robust. And so it's interesting what we're realizing here is that, you know, even even while these factors take a slice of that retirement risk pie, the, the RISA matrix is still providing great signal with regards to how you want to implement a strategy. Now, it, it, it's more than just this. Remember, there's a RISA matrix. And so within the RISA matrix, there's four quadrants, such as total return, risk wrap, uh, income protection, and time segmentation. So the further question that you want to assess is, are all of these strategies relevant with regards to how you want to take risk off the table, these retirement risks off the table? What Wade was alluding to earlier is that a risk tolerance questionnaire is presupposing everyone's in a, in a total return strategy because ultimately you're kind of going to have some sort of investment portfolio to provide some sustainable withdrawal. So you really want to ask yourself as a further an, an analysis is how, do, how does each quadrant 
identify with these retirement risks within the RISA? You know, is there a difference between total return and income protection and risk wrap and time segmentation? Is there a difference individually between all of them in and of each other? Because then that helps then make the argument that each of these strategies are valid strategies that need to absolutely be considered. And we cannot any longer just presuppose everyone into a into a total return. And incidentally, I use presuppose now every time. Wade kind of used that once. And Wade, I, I can't shake that word for whatever reason. <laughs> but hey. you, you may want to get into it now in detail since I had a little bit of a monologue there. Yeah, this was a really interesting aspect of the results was when you look at each of the four retirement styles, you can actually see differences between them, like statistically significant differences in how they, well, how concerns varied um, among the styles. And, and like Alex was saying, the risk tolerance questionnaire, it exists in the total returns world. And, and it really, because it was an accumulation-based tool and wasn't ever designed for retirement, but so much of the total returns world, it's like that secondary factor we've talked about in retirement, total returns people tend to maintain an accumulation mindset, whereas income protection people tend to have a distribution focus, which means they're worried less about maximizing the risk-adjusted return of their portfolio and worried more about ensuring they can have a predictable income stream from their portfolio. So when we look at how do these concerns vary by the different strategies, what we actually see is like for longevity, just like the risk tolerance questionnaire doesn't measure longevity concerns. Well, it turns out total returns individuals from whom the, the whole risk tolerance world exists in the first place, they're the least concerned about longevity. So it kind of makes sense that they didn't worry about measuring it. The problem is that they then try to put that sort of framework on everyone rather than just keeping it within the total returns world. But what I, I we see is- I think that's important, Wade. I, I, I think that's the crux here of, of the entirety of, <laughs> of our mission which is they're, they're pigeonholing every single investor into this quadrant and that becomes an issue. This quadrant in and of itself, total return, is a very credible strategy. Mm -hmm. It's just not for everyone. And, and I didn't mean to take away your stream of thought. I guess I did because I did interrupt, right? But I wanted, <laughs> I wanted to just emphasize this because I, I think it's quite, quite important. Yeah, in the total returns world, the uh, concerns about longevity are the least. And you can't, though you cannot just extrapolate, extrapolate that and say, well, no one cares about longevity because total returns is about a third of the population. The uh, concerns about longevity, the concerns about outliving your ability to fund your essential spending, uh, that concern is the greatest in, for the income protection. And it's also higher for the time segmentation group. The people with a time segmentation strategy tend to be more concerned about longevity uh, almost as much, although less in a statistical way, but almost as much as the number one there, which was the income protection. And then the risk wrap quadrant and the total returns quadrant all have relatively less of a concern about longevity. So it's like the more safety first you are for that RISA factor, the more you tend to be worried about longevity. And it's a, it's a finding that's important because again, longevity is a concern that a lot of people have and it's something that should be measured. And you can't just bypass that and jump directly into that risk tolerance questionnaire, which is, as Harry Markowitz confirmed, <laughs> it was never meant to apply. Well, the modern portfolio theory of which the risk tolerance questionnaire is designed to, to manage was never meant to apply to the household in well, the first place. Two, two things, Wade. I'm glad they asked Harry Markowitz that question the day after he won the Nobel Prize. <laughs> <laughs> 
just in case. Uh, although he <laughs> merited it anyways for for even on the institutional side. And the second point is that, interestingly enough, even once you're on the, the safety first side of the matrix, there's still, there is still a further separation. Uh, what makes somebody time segmentation and what makes somebody uh, income protection, right? Income protection is I want a floor of income for the remainder of my retirement, whereas time segmentation, you're looking at it in funding windows, funding buckets, if you will. And interestingly enough, you know, because they want more optionality, whereas income protection, I'm fine with commitment. Interestingly enough, the level of longevity concern differs statistically different between them. They've, they're both safety first, but there's a split. There's a nice demarcation between the relative level of optionality commitment, and it makes perfect sense, right, Wade, that if you're, if you're income protection, you have a little greater sensitivity to this longevity concern. Hence, you're fine making the jump to having an income floor in perpetuity, whereas time <laughs> segmentation, you know, you have slight, you know, on a relative basis, it's less than uh, income protection. So you're fine with committing to these funding windows, but just with greater optionality. And that reflects, I think, you know, pretty well, a lower level of longevity concern. I, I don't know. I, I think that's kind of cool. Your thoughts, Wade? Yeah. It, and it's getting back to that whole issue of the behavioral aspect of time segmentation of how can you develop a strategy when you're concerned about longevity, where you're not wanting to commit to any sort of long-term solution. So you're, how do you manage an investment portfolio in a way that helps to meet your longevity concerns? And the, the explanation that came out that guides the, the time segmentation quadrant is use your fixed income assets to cover the short-term expenses and, and then just have this hope or this belief that by leaving your growth portfolio alone, it will grow before you, it's kind of this idea of stocks for the long run again, but it will grow before you have to tap into it. And that's how you reconcile these competing, this safety first concern, but with this desire to still maintain the optionality and with this strong concern about covering your longevity expenses. The, the other, the other, just a little nuance here, we mentioned it in the previous podcast, but when you're talking about applying bonds for your fixed income, you're making a difference here between bond funds and individual bonds that you can duration match. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is a, just like in the accumulation world, there'll be this statement that bond funds and individual bonds are not different because you just, you match up the durations and everything's fine. And it is mathematically possible to do that in retirement. It's just dramatically more difficult when you're spending from the asset. So we are really for most practical uh, concerns talking about individual bonds with yeah, you're, you're, with the best way to build a, a time segmentation strategy. You're just taking them out to maturity and with the expected cash flows there. And mm -hmm. they, they, they could be other structured products that, that have specific time frames as well. It doesn't just have to be individual bonds, but there's you know, things with contractual uh, characteristics. Mm -hmm. uh, and now, interestingly, even on the probability side, there's a significant difference between both of those strategies being total return and uh, risk wrap. And just as a quick primer, risk wrap is, you know, you have that probability of it, you have this market potential, but you're giving yourself guardrails, if you will, especially on the downside, uh, half a guardrail, <laughs> if you well, want now you have, you have them on both sides, but you know, you, especially on the downside. And, and as you see here, 
the longevity concern is less for total return on a relative basis relative to risk graph. So it's pointing out, it, it's almost pointing out why these strategies kind of have, have, were created to begin with. Yeah, they're all different from each other. And if you rank them from most concerned about longevity to least concerned about longevity, it's income protection, then time segmentation, then risk wrap, and then income protection. Yeah, it, it's sort of saying there, there are four different strategies that, that, that attack risk in retirement differently. You know, because the argument could always be made, well, is there really a difference between time segmentation and risk wrap? Why bother? Or is there a difference between this and that? It's just, you know, no, there, there, there's, there's definitive differences here or, you know, quantifiable differences, better said here. And you see the same pattern with how you want to treat reserves specific to healthcare needs. And again, these are two very salient issues in retirement. Longevity, I don't want to run out of money. I mean, yeah, that's, that's the bingo, you know, in terms of this is what the largest concern is. And healthcare risk that will, that will cause spending shocks, those kind of things. Those are the two largest, I, I could propose, those are the, the two most salient concerns in retirement. And again, risk questionnaires fall silent on this completely. And the RISA actually is not only significant at a, at a general level, but can pinpoint what specific strategy makes the most sense to address the risks that this person feels are the most salient. I, I, yeah, and you've used this analogy in previous episodes about the idea of air, and of course we need air to breathe, but are you concerned on a day-to-day -day basis about getting the air you need to breathe? And generally speaking, people are not concerned about that, and that's with, with the total returns style, people, of course, they're concerned to some extent about they want to meet their essentials, they want to have reserves for healthcare, but it's not an everyday type of concern for them. So they have the they measure as the least concerned about these issues, which again, it's back to well, if you're not concerned about these things, then maybe the risk tolerance questionnaire is okay. And that's where well, the risk tolerance questionnaire is a total returns tool. Or it's, it's a, something useful for any investment portfolio, but for other strategies, the investment portfolio is more secondary after you first figure out primarily how are you going to cover your essential spending. And the, the risk uh, total return strategy just doesn't have that concern about these issues. But then again, it's the same result where ranking from least concerned about healthcare and long-term care expenses to most concerned total returns, then risk wrap, then time segmentation, and then income protection being the most concerned about having reserves to cover the unexpected um, healthcare yeah. related and long-term care related expenses. And, and the other point, when you were speaking, I, I thought, you know, I thought somebody could be asking, I'm, I'm just trying to put myself in the listener's views. They could be asking, well, they're not concerned because it's net worth. So it's really a net worth thing. You know, they, ha they have the capacity to stomach it. And, and like we said in the results, Net worth was a significant contributor, but even while controlling for net worth, the RISA was still, you know, quite quite robust in being able to signal uh, the relationship between uh, longevity and uh, these healthcare reserve concerns. So it, it's an and, not a but, kind of kind of answer that that I would that I would provide. But really, the question that begs asking now on, on a larger level, because the whole purpose here is, is trying to help you determine a retirement income style and strategy that, that, that resonates with you and you can implement.
right? And so the the question that does beg asking, and I can't I can't help but think and get away from this, which is the the elephant in the room, the the blue whale actually in the room is sixty five percent of the people, as we mentioned in in other podcasts, sixty five percent of the individuals, you know, identify with funding essential income in retirement from sources that have contractual obligations, and not a pure market portfolio approach. You know, really, 35% of folks subscribe more to a total return approach based on how they want to source retirement income. I mean, wait, what, what, what the heck is going on here then? Why, why is the industry so focused on presupposing a total return approach and jamming people with risk questionnaires that go into a model portfolio? I, I think folks just think that's the way to do it. You know, uh, yeah. there, I have some cynical answers, but you know, and, and you'll hear them in a second. But yeah, you're much nicer than I am. So I'm asking, what's going on here? Yeah, it's just with the way, and this is really not necessarily international, but in the United States, so much of the attention over our history, and this is all recent history since the 1970s, has been on investments and, and building an investment portfolio. And that's how you save for retirement. And then not necessarily thinking through these issues about what changes post-retirement. And so keeping the same sort of tool is you keep the same investment portfolio and you just figure out how much can you spend from it sustainably. But otherwise, you don't really recognize any sort of difference. You still live in that sort of total return world, which and and you assume then uh, that everyone fits that. And, and that's where, again, about a third of the population, 35% of the population, that's fine, that, that total return approach. That, and I think a lot of the advocates for the total return strategy or, or total returns, that's their own personal style. But, but it's leaving behind the other 65% of the population that isn't necessarily, that's not meeting their concerns, that's not meeting really what they need to feel comfortable with a retirement strategy. And that's where we increasingly need to move beyond that. It's not that we're saying total returns is wrong. It, it is a viable strategy, but it's not for everyone. And specifically, it's not for about two thirds of the population. So that's yeah. where we need to go beyond just a risk tolerance questionnaire and find a way to better serve the, as a starting point. How do you want to approach sourcing your essential spending needs in retirement? I, I think you hit it. Uh, what, what, what got me what you were saying is, you know, never assume malice when incompetence could be could be at play here <laughs> to, to some extent, and maybe I'm being too harsh, but the heck with it. Uh, I, I, I think there's a little bit of lazy thinking. And, uh, you know, I, I'm guilty as charged my, for myself for, you know, a good part of my professional career. But I, I do I, I do think there's a little bit of lazy thinking. And uh, there's, the tr there's a lack of just an appreciation from there's a transition from accumulation-based investing to retirement income. And when you get to that retirement income sort of docking station, it's, you know, we just conveniently treat it as a continuation of what was done during the accumulation phase. And frankly, the only difference is, hey, now I'm going to take quarterly distributions and wire you those assets. And frankly, that's what, that's what every, if you look at the wirehouses and so forth, you know, your retirement income paycheck, your retirement income paycheck is just coming out of your own volatile asset base. And, and frankly, I, I, don't, I don't think there's much consideration done for, for a, the, the general population. Like I said, there's a certain segment that that's totally fine. It's a credible strategy. My issue is that it's a misalignment for a lot of folks. You know? Now, the other piece that I think is the reason why it's taken off 
is that, you know, what's the, what's the prominent uh, model here, business model with regards to financial advice? It's an assets under management approach. And, and frankly, you have the rise of the model portfolios, especially with accumulation uh, portfolios, and it fits very nicely. You know, a total return approach fits very, very nicely in an AUM billing, in an assets under management billing model where you're just charging a percentage of, of the overall asset base. It's, it's just easy. Uh, and from there, you know, it's a it's just a perfect business complement. So from a workflow standpoint, how easy is that? I'm going to give somebody a risk questionnaire. I'm going to funnel them into a model portfolio, and I'm going to take a take a sustainable withdrawal rate from that. You know, you have any any retirement income strategy you want, as long as it's total return. You know, and and with that, you also have easy documentation. Think about it. You're a large institution. You have thousands of advisors. You need to operationalize the whole business of providing advice for investments, what better way than to give you a questionnaire that slots you into a model portfolio, you know, and, and there you, and, and off you go. I think, again, I, I, it is what it is to, to some extent, but what we find is not everyone really is aligned with a total return approach. So to quote Natalie Merchant, what's the matter here? You know, kind of thing, it, it, it shouldn't be. Uh, especially after just looking at the numbers, the numbers are the numbers, you know, frankly. And if you look at the RISA framework, it's just it's just a significantly better starting point than risk questionnaires for determining an individual's retirement income strategy. Full stop. That's not to say there's not a place for a risk questionnaire, but a starting point. You know, and once you determine that strategy fit, you can move on to other tools as appropriate, but not before. But for yeah, whatever yeah, reason, still... you know, it's been missing. <laughs> It can play a role, and I've written about, I call it the retirement care analysis, which is the way to help identify an appropriate asset allocation. But that's kind of the way that works. That's the last thing you figure out, not the first thing you figure out. And that's where the risk tonnage questionnaire can still play a role, but it comes much later in the process, not at the beginning of the process. The beginning of the process is just first think about what's your retirement income style. And then you can start to work from there. And then once you know whether how you want to fund your essential spending, you still have investments for the more discretionary piece. And that's where the risk tolerance questionnaire can help guide the asset allocation decision at the end of the process, not at the beginning of the process. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, my, my, my quarrel is not with the tool, but with the order in which it is used, you know, at, at least as, as, as a general matter. But, you know, that's, that's, that's today's episode here, uh, effectively a bake-off, right, between risk questionnaires and RISA. And, and ultimately what we're getting at is, it, you know, there's new risk in retirement. You know, how well does a risk questionnaire account for them versus the RISA? And, and I, I think it's self-evident that the RISA is able to capture these, these new retirement risks in a much more uh, specific manner that's very telling in terms of what retirement income strategy is a good fit. Wade, you want to send us home with some parting thoughts here? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we don't want to set a record for the longest <laughs> podcast episode. So I think we, we've covered it pretty well. So thanks, everyone. And we'll see you again with our next episode as we further explore retiring with style. Thank you, everyone. Wade and Alex are both principals in McLean Asset Management and Retirement Researcher. Both are SEC-registered investment advisors located in Tysons, Virginia.
The opinions expressed in this program are for general informational and educational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific securities. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor. All investing comes with a risk, including risk of loss. Past performance does not guarantee future results.